Turn with me to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. We're going to be reading verses 13 to the end of the chapter and verse 33. If you haven't been with us here, we've been going through the book of Exodus. I think we started in September last year. So we're coming up on one year and we're only halfway through. Because there's so much happening in the book of Exodus that explains the origin of the nation of Israel, God's work in their life, and also a model for what God wants. So, so far we've seen God reach down to Egypt, rescue his people with displays of power, bring them out, redeem them from slavery, bring them to Mount Sinai safely through the desert, and now he's giving them his law at Mount Sinai. In this chapter, we're going to end it. This is the end of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And next week we'll look into what happened after that. So this is the end of what's called the Book of the Covenant, where God says, if you keep my covenant, I'll be your God. And here's the covenant. It started with the Ten Commandments, and then it's explained more fully. And so here we come to the end of it. Read with me in verse 13. It says, And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, or let it be heard from your mouth. Three times you should keep a feast to me in the year. You should keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of the labors of the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land shall you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Behold, I sent an angel before you to keep you in the way, and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him, and obey his voice. Do not provoke him. For he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You should not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. I'll take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriages or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come, and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite and the Canaanite and the Hittite from before you. I'll not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I'll drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. And I'll set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. For I'll deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. They shall not dwell in your land. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And that ends the book of the covenant. 
in it, God is summing up. He's giving the final promise and warning and instruction for how they were to live in the land he was taking them to. God wanted Israel's life to be one of corporate devotion to him in all things, which would bring his personal care and blessings. But, as we'll see in the rest of the story in the Old Testament, Israel failed on all points. So, because Israel failed, Christ came as the true Israel to fulfill what was revealed here. And now we focus on Christ together in worship. Let's break that down. Three things. The focus on God, the failure, and the fulfillment in Christ. God says, here's what you're going to do when you get to the place you're going. So think of the story here. They've been brought out of Egypt. They've been there for 400 years. They're in the middle of the desert, but God says, I'm taking you somewhere. And when you get there, here's the rhythm you're going to have. Here's the rituals you're going to have. Here's the kind of life you're going to have. He says that's what these three annual feasts are. They're, they're shaping the year around something. Every year they would do these. It was this corporate worship focused on God. So he says here in verse uh, 17, three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. That's an Old Testament way of saying the family. The man would represent the family in that, in that structure back then. And so he was saying the whole family, every single person comes together three times a year to Israel, to Jerusalem, to worship together. The concept of Israel that God is putting forward is corporate community, fellowship together. He's saying three times a year I want you to be reminded that you are to come together and worship together. And what are you supposed to do when you come together? Well, these three feasts frame their life. The first one was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That happened, that was their new year, basically. Now, if you remember from chapter 12 and 13, the Passover, God says, I'm going to kill every firstborn unless you kill a lamb, put the blood in the door, and I'll pass over your door. They said, now remember that. Get all the leaven out of your house. Get ready to go because you're going to leave that night, and I'm going to take you out of Egypt. It was God's deliverance. In two ways. One, the, unle- the, the lamb was a symbol of sin being taken away, but also he was bringing them out of Egypt. So he said, I want you to remember that every year. Start your year off by remembering my redemption. The first thing you're going to do in the beginning of the year is spend seven days remembering that I saved you. All together. Then the Feast of Harvest, the first fruits of your labor. So this was about seven weeks or 50 days after the first of the year. That's when the first harvest would come in, the early crops. The first fruits of the rest of the year. This is later called... Feast of Tabernacles, and then Pentecost. Heard of Pentecost? Pentecost means 50th, seven weeks. And on that day, you would take the first fruits out of the field, and you would come together, and you would thank God for what he was going to do. You haven't had the rest of the harvest yet. You just got a little bit. But you said, this is the beginning of what God's going to give us the rest of the year. So you would remember what God did when he brought you out. Then you would believe that he was going to continue to care for you. And then there was the last one the Feast of Ingathering, at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field, the harvest is in, and you go before God together and say, thank you for doing what you said you were going to do. We recognize that all that we have now came from you. This would shape the life of the, of the, Israel, uh, the Israelite nation, coming together 
to focus on God. And that pattern would grow deeper and deeper year after year. And so God says, this is how you're going to live. Now he says, these are the, con- the concepts here. You should not offer blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor should the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. That was were ways to remind them that you offer it to God, you don't hold on to things. Then he says, the first of the first fruits of your land, you shall bring it to the house of the Lord your God. Why? To remind you over and over, God deserves the best, because God is the best. Amen. And that last one, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. No one knows what that means. So I don't know what it means either. But it has something to do with recognizing God's blessing on the earth and responding in an appropriate way. I'm not going to tell you what it means because I don't want to trick you. But it has something to do with saying God has given us life. Now we have rituals that represent we care about life and we recognize that it's all from God. It's all about focusing on God. Well, when he gives this to them, they're still in the desert. So he then says, now all this covenant you're going to keep in the desert, here's how you're going to get there. You're not going to go by yourselves. So they were lost. They didn't know where they were. They were supposed to leave Sinai and go straight to Canaan, but they ended up wandering for 40 years. But God says, here's how you're going to get there. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. and Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. God is saying, you're not on your own. I'm with you. That was the whole point of the covenant, is that God would be with them. Obedience to that covenant following God brought blessings to them. And what blessings were there? An angel to lead them. Now, I believe this angel is God. It's not really clear because the full revelation comes in the New Testament. A lot of things in the Old Testament aren't clear because we're waiting for Christ to come. But it says, my name is in him. I will speak. God is saying, I'm going to show you where to go. You're not on your own. You don't have to figure it out. I'll go before you, leading you, but also protecting you. Israel didn't know how to fight. They were not warriors. They were weak. They were former slaves. God says, that's okay. You don't have to do anything. If you obey me, I'll fight for you. I'll conquer the land for you. He even says, I'll send hornets before you. I don't know what it's like to fight in these sort of ancient battles, but I imagine that if you were attacked by hornets while you were fighting, it would be difficult. It would be a great way to lose a battle. So God is saying, I'm going to miraculously fight for you, protect you, protect your families, protect your your soldiers, so much so that you basically won't even be doing anything. He says, I'm going to prepare this place for you. He says, I'm going to prepare a land for you to go. It'll be ready when you get there. He goes, I'm not even going to drive everybody out because I want them to take care of it for you. He says, you're not going to get there, and then we're going to figure out what we're going to do. He says, I'll prepare it for you. I'll care for you in the land. Now, this is Old Testament, so he he gives Old Testament promises, which are always physical, of a healthy family, of long life, of food. That was the promise. Where did it all come from? God. God says, you keep my commandments, I'll do everything for you. Everything. I'll fight for you. I'll lead you. I'll show you the way. I'll prepare a place for you. I'll care for you when you're there. 
I'll give you what you can handle and not anymore. All of that was part of the covenant. All the Israelites had to do was obey and separate from those who didn't obey. So he says in verse 24, When you get there, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do anything according to their works. But you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. He gives them two things here. You separate from false worship, and you separate from false worshipers. So look what he says there. You shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. That was where they worshiped. He says, when you go into the land and you find a place of worship that worships up a false god, take a hammer and you smash it to pieces. You don't worship the way they worship. It's false worship. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, you shall, not, you shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. False worshipers. You don't associate with them in the land. Now, what is God saying here? Doesn't it, to our modern ears, sound a little bit like racism? But if we remember what he said, anyone could be in the covenant. Your race, your ethnicity, your country of origin didn't have anything to do with the covenant, only your worship. You see, he's not saying have nothing to do with the Canaanites. He's saying have nothing to do with those who worship false gods. There was only one division between Israel and everyone else, and that was the God they worshipped. And so he says, when you find people who are worshipping false gods, you have to separate from them. Why? Because their worship will snare you. God is not jealous in a petty way. God is saying, I want to save you, and false idols cannot save you. He's protecting the people from destruction. He's saying, I'll save you. They can't. So get away from them. Break their altars down. Separate from their worship. That's what Israel was supposed to be about. A community gathered around to celebrate God's work for them. To worship God. To be cared for by God. To be unified in worship of God. That's what this passage is teaching. And that would have been great. Wouldn't it have? An entire nation serving God. And yet what happens? The rest of the Old Testament shows us that they failed on every single point. They miserably failed. Three ways, and you're going to see a pattern here that comes up in our lives. These may have been old uh, culture that we don't recognize anymore. It's 3,000 years old, but people haven't changed. People have not changed in 3,500 years. The sin and the, and the wicked heart that they wrestled with, we wrestle with. And you can see it. You see, God says, keep these feasts to me. You know what Israel did? They kept the feast. As far as I can tell, they never stopped. But you know how they kept it? Outwardly. They did the ritual. They showed up. They did what they were supposed to, but their heart wasn't into it. In Amos chapter 5, the prophet recalls this passage and says, here's how you failed, not by not keeping the feast, but by keeping it in the wrong way. He says, I, God's talking to Israel, I hate, I despise your feast days. But it was God who said to do the feast days. And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fat and peace offerings. 
Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? Yes, you also carried Sikuth your king and Chion your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourself. What's God saying here? He's like, you kept the feast and your idols. You wanted to have it both ways. You wanted to show up and praise God with music and with sounds and with offerings and with sacrifices. And God says, I don't want your fake worship. Israel's like, we're worshiping just like you told us to. And God says, it's fake. You're outwardly worshiping me, but inwardly you're holding on to a false god. How does that apply to us? Do you think because you do what the Bible says that that's enough? That you show up and sing the songs of worship? That you sacrifice for God and God's happy as if it's a transaction? If you sit here week after week without listening, that's false worship. You give money to God but don't want to, it's false worship. It's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is saying if I just do the right things, doesn't matter what I feel like inside. doesn't matter what I want to do. Only the outward matters, not the inward. And so Israel tried to keep God's feast without loving God. And God says, I despise your feast days. Keep your sacrifices. Keep your music. Doing the right thing on the outside is worthless to God unless your heart is right. So Israel failed even in the things where they did the right thing on the outward. They still failed. But more than that, they became idolaters. He says, do not bow to those gods. Tear them down. Don't associate with, those, with that false worship. But what did Israel do? Constantly, over and over again, worship false gods. Now, how many of us bow down to idols? Who sacrifices their children to Moloch? Nobody. So we're good. We just skip this. Except we can't. Because you know what idolatry is? For Israel, it was saying, we want children, and we want to land, and we want to be healthy. How do we get it? Israel said, Baal will give it to us. This idol will give it to us. God is saying, I'll give it to you. And they're like, yeah, but how does this affect us? Do you know that you are going to have a problem this week? Or you're already in a problem. And being a Christian is not going to change that. You are going to have problems when you're a Christian. Just like Israel had problems. The question is, when the problem comes, who do you trust to get you through it? Not, will you have problems? See, Israel thought maybe they could get away from the problems by serving the false gods. God is saying, you are going to have problems, but I'll take care of them. And Israel is like, yeah, but it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like you're going to. So we're going to find some extra help. We're not going to reject God. Israel didn't reject God. They just worshiped the Lord and the golden calf. They just want a little extra help. See, that's what we do. You have problems, and you need answers for them. And so you look for answers outside of God. You're lonely, so you look at pornography. Loneliness is not the sin. 
It's how you answer it. You have low self-esteem. So you connive in relationships. You feel like you're losing control. So you become a workaholic. What's happening? You've got a problem and you go to a false god to fix it. Now it's not a stone figure or a statue that you bow down to. Sometimes it's good things. Sometimes it's your family. You need to feel special, so you force relationships. You want time to yourself, so you ignore people. False gods that you bow down before to fix your problems. God is saying, you must trust me. And sometimes it doesn't look like I'm going to fix it. Because if it looked like God was going to fix it, no one would ever be tempted by false gods. If you said, I've got this problem, but I can see how God's going to fix it, that's easy. It's when you can't see how God's going to fix it. Then you trust him. But a false worshiper, an idolater, won't go that far. They'll grab what's right in front of them. They'll get what they can put their hands on. See, I can't see God, but I can see my job. I can't see God, but I can see money. So I'm going to trust in what I can see. I'm going to trust in a false God to get me through this problem. It's idolatry. It's trusting in a false hope. Israel did it, and we do it. How does that come about? By tolerance of sin. He said, make no covenant with them. Don't let them dwell on your land. Don't let them coexist with you in the land of Israel. Now, how would they do that? They knew they were wrong. Why would they let them exist there? Well, they're not that wrong. He says, don't make a covenant with them. You see, a covenant is a binding agreement that protects you. So Israel's like, they're wrong, but we'll make a covenant so they don't get out of bounds. A little sin that you can control is okay. I know it's bad, but I've got it under control. Just a little bit won't hurt me. We're like, oh, that's not true. But don't you protect it a little bit? You make a covenant with sin to not let it get too big? I'll put the boundaries on it. Because I know it's not good, so I'll keep it from growing. That's not God's plan. It's zero tolerance. A low view of sin allows sin to flourish. So often we think, I'm tempted so much right now, I can't stand it. I'll just give into it now so I can get rid of it. The temptation is pressing on me to gossip, to lust, to stress out, to be controlling. I'll just give into it now, get rid of the temptation, then we can move forward. God says, no, make no covenant. Make no agreement. You know what sin does? He says here, it's a snare to you. By giving into the sin, it doesn't go away. It takes root. It produces. God says, I'll make you produce. I'll make you flourish. And sin says, so will I. Let's do it together. And so every time you give into a temptation, every time you give into a sin, it produces more temptation. It produces more sin. That's the deceptiveness of sin. That's why he says it's a snare. It will surely be a snare to you. It's not a guy with a club. It's not Satan with a pitchfork. It's sin saying, give in one time and I'll go away. Keep me, 
over here and I won't affect any of the rest of your life. But that's not how it works. So Israel fails and we see that we would have failed and we do fail. We give lip service to God, but we don't actually love him. You see the law, we've talked about it over and over again. The law only said what to do, not how to do it. How do you fight back against everyone when they're against you? How do you not trust in false gods when they offer you what you want? How? Israel didn't have an answer because the law doesn't give an answer. And so they failed. They were judged. We fail. We're judged. But what's the Old Testament about? It's about showing us something in order to point us to something else. It's not go back to Israel. It's look at this. Wouldn't have been great if it worked, but it didn't. So you need something else. This Israel didn't work. So God sent another Israel, another son. Christ is the true and faithful Israel. Two things for that. Christ is for us and Christ is before us. Christ is for us. You see, he didn't say, let me show you how to do it. He said, I'll do it for you. Look at the feast here, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What is that? That's the Passover where the, set, the lamb is sacrificed. He said, Israel, you do it. Jesus says, I'll be it for you. I'll be the Passover lamb. I'll be the sacrifice. I'll replace you. That's what Israel needed because they'd already tried it. You've already tried it. See, if you're not a Christian today, if you don't believe this, if you don't believe in Christ, you're just going to have to try harder and try harder and fail more, and try harder, until in the end, all of your failures will be brought back to you. But if you're a believer, then you look to this feast of unleavened bread, this sacrifice, and Christ dying for you. Christ replacing you. Christ sacrificing for you. Then it's not try harder, it's just believe. If you're not a believer, it's all on you. If you are a believer... It's all on Christ. That's what this Passover teaches us. But he's not just a Passover land. He's also the first fruits. The feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors. The first fruits of your labors. You see the inherent problem in that? It's all about your labors. Christ says, I'll be your first fruits. How? 1 Corinthians 15 says, He is the first fruits of the dead. Guess who came alive from the dead? Jesus. Guess who else is going to come alive from the dead? Us. Guess who defeated sickness first? Jesus. Guess who else is going to defeat sickness? Us. The day of Pentecost, you remember the day of Pentecost? We, we don't think of it in connection, but they were celebrating the Feast of Harvest. That's why everyone was there to celebrate the Feast of Harvest where they raised their first fruits to God and says, we believe you'll give us more. Peter stood up and says, God will give you more. He gives you the Holy Spirit. You see, don't you want to be in heaven right now? Or more specifically, don't you want to not be sick? Don't you want to not have relationship problems? Don't you want to not have to fight sin every day? Wouldn't that be great? How do you know it's going to happen? Because you celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. The Spirit is the promise that it will come to pass. 
In him, in Christ you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. No matter how bad your problem is, God's already shown you the first fruits. He says, I came back alive and I sent you the Spirit. Isn't that good enough? What more guarantee could you have than God with you? But you have to believe it, don't you? Just like the Israelites when they had to say, God will give us more, you have to say, God will finish his work. There's no evidence other than the raised, resurrected Jesus and the Spirit in you. There's no tangible signs right now that he's going to come back. It doesn't look like it's going to work out, does it? Your relationship sometimes looks like it's not going to work out. Your health is not going to work out. What then? Do you believe what God says? As African-American tradition says, he is a God who makes a way out of no way. A God who makes a way out of no way. You see, if there was a way, you would have taken it. But you, there is no way. There's no way it's going to work out. But God can make it work out, and you just have to believe it. That's the first fruits. But he's not just the first fruits. He's the divine warrior. You see what God is saying here? I'll go before you, and I'll fight for you. God is a warrior. God fights evil. He gets his hands dirty. He goes up against people. Jesus does the same thing. Jesus is this angel for us, the divine warrior going ahead in death. You realize you don't want to go to the grave by yourself. You want someone to go ahead of you and come back. Jesus is the divine warrior who goes past the veil, defeats the devil, and comes back for us. He's already been there. He's already got it. Whatever you're going into, Christ has already defeated it. Now, you can't see that yet, can you? Which is why faith is how we live. Not by sight, but by faith. The divine warrior going into battle for us, coming back for us. Isn't that great to know that you don't have to do it? You don't have to fix your problems. You don't have to fix people. You don't have to make sure it's going to work out. You know your anxiety that keeps you up at night, that gives you that stress, that panic? You know why? Because bad things are going to happen. You see, sometimes people are like, I don't worry so much. Mm, I don't know about that. I've seen how things turn out. Faith says, yeah, it's going to be bad, but God's already got it. It's going to be bad, but the warrior has gone ahead, and he's come back. The hope for Israel is the hope for us, the angel that goes before us, the sacrifice for us, Christ dying for us. But what are we to do about it? What is this church supposed to do? It's not keep the covenant. It's not obey. It's look to the one who did it. Look to Christ. You see, the covenant was obey and be blessed. Now it's believe and be blessed. But you know what you have to have to believe? Something to believe in. You have to see Christ to believe in him. And so the goal of the church is to bring Christ before you so that you can believe in him. With the same pattern. True corporate worship bringing everyone together to worship God. So we model it every Sunday. You see, they had their rituals. 
we have ours. On the first day of the week, we come together to present Christ anew so that you can believe in him. Because you think you've got to work. And by Saturday, you convince yourself that you've got to work to be accepted. So you come back on Sunday to be reminded that Christ for us. So you're reminded by the gathering of the body that Christ is bringing together in Christ. That's why we have the regulative principle. That's why our worship is based only on what the scripture tells us. You see, God says don't allow false worship. Because false worship will kill you. So in the New Testament, we say, we want the same thing. We don't want false worship. How should we worship? The Word. Just like in the Old Testament, the Word. The Word shows us the way. The Word leads us. The Word guides us. Do you want life? Believe the Word. Which means our services are gathered around the Word. But also church discipline. See, church discipline doesn't seem gospel-centered, does it? It seems vindictive. It seems harsh. But God is saying if you allow sin, if you allow false worshipers to just flourish, you will become a false worshiper. Church discipline is about protecting the gospel. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. He said a little, he says, cast out that evil man from among you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's not about being perfect. It's about gathering with people who worship God. And when you let false worship in, what does it do? takes your eyes off of Jesus. It says his sacrifice wasn't necessary. It said sin's not that bad. You can do it if you try. False worship destroys you. Church discipline protects the gospel. And so we have ritual feast. Rituals aren't just for the Catholics. They're not just for the Jews. They're for us to remind us. We keep the feast. Not like they did, but the new feast, the Lord's Supper. And what does the Lord's Supper do? It tells us exactly what it told them. When you come together as a church, when you gather in corporate worship, I hear that there are divisions among you. What's the answer? You know what the next verses are? The Lord's Supper. When you come together and everything doesn't feel right, what do you do? You have a ritual that points you to Christ. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take heed, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Just like Israel was to look back to the rescue from Egypt, when we take the Lord's Supper, we look back to Christ. What he did for us. You know why there's divisions in the church? Because you're not looking at Christ. You know why there's anxiety in your life? Because you're not trusting Christ. You're not looking at him. The Lord's Supper brings Christ to our remembrance. We remember the sacrifice. But also, just like the first fruits, we believe his covenant. He said, take ye, this is my body. He also took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. How do you know Jesus is with you right now? He made a blood covenant with you. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that he can't forsake his own body. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to look to Jesus. Not look to the bread, to the juice, to the people. It's come together to look at Jesus. But also, it's to anticipate. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. See, God didn't just save you from your past sins. He's not just with you. 
he's also going before you to prepare. See, look what it says in Exodus. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. All they got was a country. All they got was a plot of land. God says, I'm still preparing. I'm still going before you to prepare. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Amen. You see, you take the Lord's Supper to remember that God's already gone ahead. He's getting ready for you. He's getting something ready for you. Amen. Something better than what you've got right now. God is going to prepare a place for you. Revelation 21, this is our hope. This is what we think about when we take the Lord's Supper. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there were no more sea. Now I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Prepared. God's not going to be surprised when you get there. He's not figuring out how to get you there. He's preparing it for you. He's got a prepared place for you. If you're a Christian, the covenant was for Israel. You don't have to keep it. All you have to do is believe in Christ, and he keeps it for you. And the Lord's Supper reminds you that God's not just forgiving your sins. He's not just staying with you, but he's preparing for you. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, or have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. God's waiting for you. He's done everything for you, and he's waiting for you. Won't you trust Christ? Let's pray.